This is Car Expert. Is Volkswagen going to actually have it retested or are they just going to cop the fact that they're going to lose the five-star rating in Australia as well? Ford has taken the recipe in a formula that works so well with the old one and they've just turned it up to 11 and they've made what looks like the perfect little monster truck for Australian buyers. With this Avalage 6 hybrid, it produces 530 newton metres of torque, but all of this is sent to the front wheels, (laughs) which terrifies me just a little bit. My name's Mandy Turner. Hello, William Stockford. Hello, Mandy Turner. And hello, James Wong. Oh, relegated to last one again. Hi, Mandy. It's only just because it's... I oh, know it is alphabetical. It's yeah. alphabetical. Yeah, you're always last. I'm sorry. Should be alphabetical by first name, but anyway. I won't take over your ship, Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we have a guest on to join us for the start of this podcast as well, Car Experts Chief Experience and Innovation Officer, Jason Bradshaw. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Mandy, great to be on the podcast, and I think we need to look at that alphabet again. Oh, yes, true. Well, you, would have, you should have been first, right? <laughs> oh, opportunity missed. Um, now, some Car Expert fans may rem- remember last year we had the Sydney Car Expert Experience Centre, which was a massive success. And as promised, we have branched out to another city. Uh, Jason, for those who don't know what the Experience Centre is, can you give us a bit of a refresher? Yeah, sure, Mandy. The Experience Centre really is for anyone that's looking for independent car advice without the pressure of buying because it's a car showroom where you get all advice and no sell. You can't buy a car at the Car Expert Experience Centre, but you can get a load of independent expert advice around around a whole range of cars that are on display. You know, if you're looking to discover the next car and the latest technologies, compare cars and find one that suits you, and test drive a car to gain the confidence to make that next step in your buying uh, purchase, then the Car Expert Experience Centre is for you. Mandy, the thing that most Australians don't realise is that every seven to ten years, the most Australians replace their car, but they don't think about all the technology that has changed since the last time they bought a car. You know, think about your iPhone from 10 years ago. It's an antique compared to the iPhone of today. And cars are exactly the same. You hop in a car from 10 years ago and it's chalk and cheese. And the Experience Centre gives people the time that they need and the experts that they can access on the spot to learn how all the new technology works, all the safety features, all the, the tech, and just makes it really simple in a comfortable, welcoming environment for people to, to explore, discover and compare their next car. What did we learn from the, the centre in Sydney? How much of a success was it? So the pilot in Sydney went for just over three months and 30,000 uh, Sydney siders visited during that time and 96% of them said that, the, that they would visit an experience centre ahead of purchasing their next car because they really valued the independence. They valued the ability to go on a test drive without having someone sit in the back of the car trying to sell them during the the test drive. And, of course, being able to ask really open uh, questions around which brand, which model is right for them in their lifestyle now without having... uh, the challenge of having to go to multiple dealerships to try and achieve the same thing. And that really is one of the key benefits. You know, years ago, you'd have, you know, a whole road full of different automotive brands and you'd start at one end and you would walk your way down to the other end. And by the end of the day, hopefully you'd chosen your next car. But as things have moved on, dealerships are more spread out and it's harder for people to actually, you know, 
independently and subjectively compare cars. And they can do that at the experience center without any time pressures, without any pressure to actually make a purchase that day. Okay. So we better get on to the, the, the big announcement. Which city are we at next? So the Car Expert Experience Centre is coming to Melbourne at the Woo! district in Docklands. Yay! I don't have to fly anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, of course, James and Will were staffing the Experience Centre in Sydney um, along with the rest of the Car Expert team. So I'm sure uh, James and Will have some insights around what the first one was like as well. Um, yeah, so like I, I actually have really good memories of working at the Experience Centre. I was there quite a bit actually and there was a couple of stints where I was there for up to a week and what I really enjoyed about it, and I think I've said this on podcasts past, is that it sort of brought what we do as automotive journalists to life because obviously as online um, publishers, we do a lot of work on the internet and we do a lot of comment forums and you know we answer emails and all that kind of stuff, but actually meet real car buyers in person and sort of get a feel for what they want and need out of their next vehicle and give them advice without putting pressure on them. You have really awesome conversations. I learned so much about, you know, how diverse uh, a consideration set for a new car buyer might be. The, the demographic in Sydney was very diverse as well. So, people had different needs. I had different age groups, you know, all sorts of things. And it was actually so amazing to get that insight into a a buyer's headspace, you know, that some people might be considering anything from, <laughs> there were some really strange consideration sets. Like one lady was going from a Prius, she had it, then went into a CX-3 and then liked the idea of getting a Peugeot 3008, but also liked the Palisade. It was, it was a really odd thing because a lot of people buy on price as well. So it's like, how can I maximize my dollar? Um, and that's something I really enjoyed about it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting for my commission because I think I, I, I convinced some people to go buy things because they really enjoyed it. But um, no, it was, it, it was a lot of fun and it, it sort of was, it was very, rewarding to have those conversations with real people and feel like you're, you're helping someone out. So I'm really excited for this next installment. It felt like kind of win-win because on one hand, um, yeah, as James said, you we were getting insights on, on what real world buyers were actually after, like the number of people that were expressed how enthusiastic they were about electric vehicles actually surprised me. Um, but also, you know, it's that good feeling you get um, when people ask, when friends and family ask you for advice on cars, like, oh, I'm looking at getting something and then you point them in the right direction and then they, they test drive it and they're really satisfied and then they end up buying it. It's a good feeling for you. It was just like that times a thousand because we just had, we're having so many interactions with so many different people and some really memorable, like in a good way, people um, that I was speaking to. So, it was, it was a really good time. So, Awesome stuff. Um, Jason, when can we expect this to open? So uh, the f opening will be in May at the District Docklands in Melbourne. And it's good that Will mentioned electric vehicles because for the first three months of the new Experience Centre, we'll be focused on electric and plug-in hybrids exclusively, uh, which many people may not realise electric vehicles is the fastest growing segment in the Australian automotive sector at the moment. With over 10,000 electric vehicles sold uh, last year, it's been a phenomenal growth story for that technology. And it's not like driving any other car on the road. So really great opportunity for people to come and test drive and to ask questions and to learn about the technology that's moving and evolving very quickly. But of course, the Experience Centre, Mandy, is not just going to stay in Melbourne. Uh, we do have plans on rolling out the Experience Centres in cities across the country. 
industry. And so what I'd really encourage people to do is go to carexpert.com.au uh, visit the Experience Centre page and register their interest so they can stay in the know about all things Car Expert Experience Centres. And at the moment, anyone that registers before April 2022 goes in the draw to win a $2,000 prepaid Visa gift card. Oh, yes, fantastic. The way uh, petrol prices are going at the moment, it, that'll fill up a tank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we we look forward to um, well keeping everyone up to date with this. It's only just a couple of months away. Uh, Jason Bradshaw, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Mandy. Okay, it's time for this week's news, and we once again, as last week, bring in Jack Quick. Hello, Jack. Hello, Mandy. Thank you for having me once again. Always a pleasure to have you on. Now, I, I sort of wish we actually had Croft here just to say this one word, that the 2023 Ferrari Puro Sangue SUV has been leaked. I think yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. So I, yeah. I've spent my whole kind of like entirety working at Car Expert calling it the Puro Sangue, which I know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and no one corrected me until today um, where Mike was like, it's a Puro Sangue. And I'm like... Huh. And all, he, didn't, he didn't even tell me I was wrong. I just kind of meant, like, clicked. I was like, right. So I've been saying that wrong the whole time. So, <laughs> so um, I'll get to the point. The, the Puro Sangue is Ferrari's first SUV, but they're not calling it an SUV. They're calling it an FUV, which is a stands for Ferrari Utility Vehicle. So take from that what you will. Um, but so we've kind of seen a whole heap of prototype and test mules in the last few months, but this is the first time I've seen it in in proper bo- production body form with no camouflage. It was leaked with a couple of photos on Instagram um, in the production plant. And um, it kind of just looks like a lifted version of the GTC4 Lusso. So like that two plus two body style, Grand Tour, a very long and elongated, but just a little bit lifted. And you can kind of tell it has that SUV-esque styling because it has like the, the glossy black uh, cladding around the outside, yeah. along around the wheel arches, all the kind of things that are synonymous with like crossover SUVs. Um, but it does have all of the the current gen Ferrari Ferrari uh, Ferrari um, design cues, such as like the split headlights and the the quad taillights and the also the quad exhaust tailpipes. Um, all very current gen Ferrari, so it doesn't look out of place in the range, although it is an SUV. Um, and when it, we don't know what it's going to be powered uh, by at this stage. It could be V6, V8, could even be a V12. We don't know at this stage, um, but it is going to compete against uh, cars like the Aston Martin DBX, um, Audi RSQ8, Lamborghini Urus, and along those kind of um, performance was super SUVs is how I'd almost describe it in a sense. Um, but I think I might pass over to the panel now. Would you guys, what do you reckon about the, the pure sangue? And, and if you, would you take one over, say, an Urus? Look, it, no. it's... <laughs> I have a more detailed response to that. Um, I think it's 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 quite impressive that these very these are photos that would normally be very unflattering. They're kind of blurry, taken really close up on an assembly line. It's in grey with pretty ugly wheels, and yet I'm looking at this and I'm thinking this is actually a pretty damn good looking SUV. It actually kind of works at melding Ferrari styling cues on a SUV body. So this looks better than a Lamborghini, but without knowing what's going to power it. 
So yes, I think oh. um, the, the best place to, to look at it would be on the Car Expert website where all of the photos are. So if you want to have a look, check out my article. <laughs> Sorry, James is making a face at me. Why are you making a face uh, at me about that? It's like an eel face. Uh, because, well, you didn't, I know you said you had a more detailed response, but you didn't actually give me a chance to give my detailed response. And um, <laughs> this, I've questioned, I've questioned Will's taste oh, in general for a long time go. and those comment those comments like this looks all kinds of wrong like maybe the back the, the back the back view is okay i guess and i reckon once you sort of see it in person and like the, the three-dimensional elements sort of sit and natural light hits it'll look all right but it the first thing i thought when i saw this was like a ferrari roma like let itself go and had kids and like <laughs> it's just sitting there that front end, I, I really don't like the front end. I, I, I found that with Ferrari's most recent styling, I, I haven't really gravitated towards it on most of their latest vehicles. I feel like they had a very distinctive um, sort of design language for a really long time that sort of made all of their like iconic cars from like the, you know, the 80s, 90s and noughties that were like, it was very distinctively Ferrari and you could sort of see where like the F1 elements had come in and it you know, you could instantly recognize it. Whereas some of their new stuff, I don't really feel the same way. It's sort of like they look like cool cars, but they've come off a little bit generic, like the Roma and the SF90 and then uh, the F8, maybe less so the F8, but the other two sort of look like a mix of other different brand, of other brands' vehicles. So like the Roma sort of looks somewhere between an Aston Martin and a Maserati and a couple of other things, whereas the SF90 could be a McLaren if you stuck a McLaren badge on it. So that that's just my opinion. And I just think, I, I'll probably change my mind when I see this Puro Sangue in person, but um, my money is on the Urus, if I was to, tissues between the two. Um, yeah, I'm sure it'll sound great. They know how to make a car sound good. Mm, so if, they, if you so. can get it with the, yeah. We'll just have to wait and see and I'll, I'll wait for my apology. <laughs> you know, Will, you know, Will, you ain't never going to get an apology from me. <laughs> Okay. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) (laughs) The next story uh, is another SUV, but definitely not a super SUV. The 2022 Havel Havel H6 Hybrid. We have the pricing and specs for these, Jack. So yes, yeah, completely different spectrum of SUV. Very, um, very everyday in the sense that it's not a million dollar SUVs, but it's the Aval H6 Hybrid and it's going to cost uh, $44,990 drive away. So to kind of put into context, the Aval H6 Hybrid is kind of like the the first kind of SUV in Australia to rival the Toyota RAV4 Hybrid, which is very, very popular and you are waiting a very, very long time for a RAV4 Hybrid at the moment. So it's going to give it an alternative for buyers in Australia and it could also mean that you mightn't necessarily have to wait as long for an H6 if you want, uh, like an H6 Hybrid, if you don't want to wait 12 or however long for a, a RAV4 Hybrid. It gives you some more options, which is nice. So with this uh, Avalanche 6 um, hybrid, it's going to be powered by a 1.5-litre um, turbocharged petrol engine with a two-speed electric motor and a 1.8-kilowatt-hour battery pack. So it is, it, it's not a large battery pack. It's just a, a smaller hybrid system where it can only do 
electric only at like low speeds. It's not, I'm guessing it's not really meant for high, it's not meant for high speeds at all really, where it will use that petrol engine um, in conjunction together to get the full power outputs of, so it produces um, a total uh, system output of 179 kilowatts of power and a really nice amount of uh, 530 newton meters of torque, which is wow. quite nice. Um, but all of this is sent to the front wheels, <laughs> which terrifies me just a little bit. Um, not all wheel drive. <laughs> no, not, it's only available in a single um, trim level, going to be available in a single trim level in Australia, um, where it's going to be um, front wheel drive only. Whereas, and where it um, kind of falls in the in context of the RAV4 hybrid range, um, with the Avalanche 6 hybrid being about 45 grand, the RAV4 range starts at like mid 30s and goes to like um, low 50s in that kind of spectrum. And it does come with an all-wheel drive system in the form of like an e-hybrid where there's just an electric motor on the, the rear axle. So um, we'll have to wait and see. At this stage, um, the, the claimed fuel consumption is uh, rated at 5.2 litres per 100 Ks. So... Sounds good to me. What do you guys reckon? <laughs> um, I think it's great that Havel has um, been able to bring the car here. I was expecting maybe slightly more competitive pricing because a top sp- uh, it's it's based on the top trim level, um, which is called the Ultra in Australia, and it's about three or four grand more. Where Toyota's managed to windle the difference down to about fifteen hundred bucks. Um, the other issue is that. Uh, Havel H6 hybrid in that single trim is about the same price on the road as a RAV4 GXL hybrid, which while may, it may not have the same level of features on paper, will be a, it's obviously a more recognisable brand. From my experience between the two vehicles, the RAV4's interior technology and driver assist features are much more um, well sorted than the stuff from Havel. I feel like a lot of the Chinese brands, they have a lot of, they look really good on paper because on the spec sheet, it's very glossy with, you know, Know, really long dot points, um, dot point lists, and you know ticks all the boss boxes, but the execution is not quite there yet. Um, I'm not sure whether this H- H6 hybrid will have any um, refinements to some of the stuff that it has, but obviously it's really well s- specified on paper. I'm sure that, like Jack said, um, it'll reduce wait times for people that might be looking at a mid-size SUV with a hybrid. Your options are fairly limited at this point. It's either the Rav4, or you, or you have to go for something like a, a Subaru Forester hybrid, which is not actually a hybrid. It's more of like a mild hybrid with some very mild electric drive assistance at parking speeds and by all accounts it's not very good so you know (laughs) unless you step up to something a lot more expensive there's limited choice so it's good at least that um brands like Havel are taking a punt in the hybrid space in the mainstream um, price brackets and hopefully this means that we'll see not only more variants of the H6 hybrid come to Australia if demand's really high but hopefully it also forces other brands to start bringing their electrified options um, between the forty dollars and $50,000 price bracket as well because I think the more competition um, the better because it keeps the mainstream players accountable especially in a world like we live in now with rising prices and low stock and all this other nonsense um, but also you know it's just good to have choice and it means that everybody mm-hmm. can find the right car for them let's hope they do bring in some more affordable variants because we are looking at six grand more than a front wheel drive ultra um but i suspect um they will sell almost every one of these that they that they bring in um i am a little bit concerned at the fact that it is front wheel drive only because i've driven the regular h6 
It's got 150 kilowatts and 320 newton meters of torque, and that felt like too much for the front wheels. So this almost absurd amount of torque, 530 newton meters uh, of torque in this. Oh, it's uh, you're going to just have to be very gentle with your right foot. Um, but fuel economy, I mean, they've claimed 5.2 liters per 100 kilometers. That's not too far off the RAV4, which with, in front-wheel drive hybrid, guys, is 4.7 litres per 100 kilometres. So, on paper, this looks good, but let's see how it drives. I will say, though, I really am impressed with the presentation of the Havel H6. This new generation is just a huge leap. It, it looks nice and resolved from the outside, and inside is a very – the cabin's got showroom appeal, Every t- everybody I showed it to, they're like, oh, wow, this is actually really quite nice. So, well, let's see how it drives. All right, Jack, the 2022 Ineos Grenadier, we have photos of the prototypes rolling off the production line. Yeah, so the Ineos Grenadier, it's kind of been like a, a well-storied kind of like mysterious vehicle. Like, is it? Isn't it? Isn't, like, what's <laughs> happening? Is it an actual car that I'm going to eventually be able to buy? Think of it, you've probably seen photos of it everywhere, but it's kind of like a, a spiritual successor to the original Land Rover Defender, Toyota Land Cruiser, uh, Land Cruiser 70 Series, and the Mercedes-Benz G-Wagon. Um, if you think about the G-Wagon, though, it, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of the earlier prototypes were made at uh, Magna Steyr, which is the same uh, plant where the G-Wagon is still made to this day. The reason for this story is um, Ineos has recently acquired a plant in Humbuck, which was an ex-smart car um, um, a plant where they'd produce all of the, the smart vehicles and um, uh, prototypes have started to roll off the production lines there, um, which is um, going to kind of inform what the process is like for when they go into series production. Um, so um, at this stage, we don't really know uh, f- full pricing and specifications for the Ineos, but um, the Grenadier should say. Um, but the company has said it's going to reveal the full the full suite of everything in April. Um, I'm hoping this does include Australia as well because it is uh, we are uh, deemed as a, a key market for Ineos, along with um, a few other. Um, regions as well that I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know that Australia is one of them. We do know at this stage um, indicative pricing is going to be about $84,500. And at this stage, the Grenadier has, um, (laughs) um, it's going to be powered by a suite of BMW engines um, in line six in both um, petrol and diesel forms. It's also going to have like the classic Defender-esque, the uh, design keys looks the design cue should say and then also a ladder frame chassis solid axles a permanent four-wheel drive and a low range transfer case and we should hopefully see it um, on the website it says that it should be in australia by mid 22 but i don't trust that i reckon it's going to be towards the end of this year or late 2022 um, and we should see it on the roads in australia we have already seen prototypes driving around um, getting stuck in floodwaters so watch it all <laughs> On car expert um, we we've covered a lot of the things that Ineos has been doing and the, um, the company's been giving us um, a lot of insights into how um, early prototype and development work uh, goes in Australia which is really cool really really hmm. cool 
Fantastic. I can't wait to can't wait to see it here in Australia. And uh, lastly, Jack, uh, Volkswagen are very unimpressed because the five-star ANCAP safety rating on the Passat is being removed. Yes. So, yeah, um, the Volkswagen Passat first went on sale here in, um, in its current generation, should say, in a, um, roughly 2015, which is when it received its a five-star ANCAP rating, um, which was conducted by Euro ANCAP in 2014. There's a whole heap of rules and guidelines to do with ANCAP to do with how relevant ANCAP ratings are. And technically, the, the five-star ANCAP rating should have been axed 12 months ago. I will kind of hand over to, to Will on this because I know that he knows a lot more about the, all of the idiosyncrasies of ANCAP and what this means for Volkswagen and why, why they're so grumpy. So it's, it's, uh, it's uh, I was going to say impassioned. Um, basically, Volkswagen is not the only brand that's affected here. So there are numerous cars across numerous brands that will actually lose their ANCAP rating on December 31st, 2022. Now, ANCAP said back in 2018 that um, effectively uh, they were introducing a rating validity period. So t- tested vehicles, once they've been tested, they would need to be tested again after six years had passed if they wanted to keep their ratings. Um, now, older vehicles had previously been grandfathered in, but time is up on December 31. So, a whole bunch of cars are effectively just going to lose their safety rating. Now, ANCAP and Euro ANCAP harmonized their testing protocols and procedures um, a few years ago now. And Euro ANCAP has actually already withdrawn its five-star rating for the Passat. Um, but ANCAP is following this year. Now, I mentioned a lot of um, companies are going to be affected by this kind of removal of the grandfathering rule. Volkswagen's the only one that put out a very impassioned press release about it, <laughs> I should say. Um, and they uh, had a bit to say at ANCAP. So they quoted uh, Volkswagen Passenger Vehicles brand director uh, who said, it's unclear if ANCAP withdraws ratings at a specified point merely for administrative convenience. It's clear that the Passat has embodied ANCAP's previously stated ideal that a model should become safer through its life cycle. Just as ANCAP has elsewhere rightly pointed out the absence of safety technology, why would it fail to account for active and passive safety upgrades that bring a model to the forefront of occupant and bystander technology? Um, And Volkswagen has pointed specifically to the fact that they have added numerous um, active safety features to the Passat since it was initially launched and since it was initially tested. Uh, But ANCAP has effectively just said, look, um, the majority of brands continue to do the right thing by making improvements to safety specification. Um, and the option is there for a car brand to update its rating year date stamp through retesting. That's open. It's encouraged. Volkswagen doesn't seem to be indicating that they want to retest it. And that shouldn't necessarily fall on um, Volkswagen Australia because most a lot of models that are sold here that are also sold in Europe. ANCAP relies uh, on the Euro ANCAP testing uh, to to award the relevant rating. So it kind of begs the question why Volkswagen back in Germany isn't having this retested, uh, particularly as there are, you know, fleets and and government agencies and, and things like that that do require vehicles that are being purchased by said fleets to have a five star rating. Now, this Passat is it's not being replaced this year. We know that it's towards the end of its life cycle, but it's still got a little bit of juice left in it. Um, so, you know, is Volkswagen going to actually have it retested or are they just going to cop the fact that they're going to lose the five-star rating in Australia as well? 
Yeah, it's uh, only time will tell. More news can be found at carexpert.com.au. And thank you, Jack Quick. Thank you, Mandy. Hello to you, Mike Costello. Hello, gang. How are we? Very good. Just sitting in the back of a Toyota Hilux at the moment. It's actually surprisingly good with uh, audio absorption. Well, I've got a 4x2 Hilux Workmate at the moment, the traffic light, traffic cone special. And um, it's it's going to be heavily laden on the weekend, but at the moment it's unladen. And i got to say, mm. my back is not uh, enjoying the driving experience <laughs> quite oh, that no. much. It's a little bit of a throwback. But let's hope it makes a better podcasting studio than it does uh, – than it does comfort machine. <laughs> now, um, you're going to settle into the back of that Hilux for maybe the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, we're going to be chatting about, or you're going to be chatting about, the Hyundai i20N and Subaru BRZ comparison soon. But firstly, let's talk about possibly the most hardcore ute on our road soon, the second-generation 2022 Ford Ranger Raptor. Uh, you've written an article that talks about everything you need to know, which is exactly what it's called. Um, so I suppose we probably should start at the beginning. What's changed from the first gen? Oh, what hasn't changed? I mean, I <laughs> guess fundamentally it's very much the same sort of recipe that goes into it. Um, so the new generation Ranger is spun off the same core T6 platform as the old one with a number of changes. And this Raptor, it's been to the gym, basically. It looks tougher than the previous <laughs> one did, even more badass than the previous one did. You know, huge flares, massive lettered grill, plenty of, you know, black plastic, tough cladding, great light signatures, including matrix LEDs up the front, um, you know, huge chunky tires. Um, so it, it, it very much follows the same playbook as the previous one. The really big change comes in, in, in the area of powertrain. So probably the biggest criticism that the old Raptor got was that it had a two-litre bi-turbo diesel engine with 157 kilowatts of power and 500 newton metres of torque, which, you know, it's nothing to sneeze at, but when you're sort of pitching this as a high-speed Baja-style desert racer, a two-litre diesel for a lot of people never really cut the mustard. And clearly Ford has listened because they've taken the three-litre twin-turbo petrol six from the Bronco Raptor and plonked it under the bonnet for 292 kilowatts of power, uh, which is about 400 horsepower in the old language and 583 newton metres of torque. So almost double the power of the old one. Ford hasn't given specific performance figures yet other than to say this thing will be hot hatch quick on dirt. So that's certainly something to ponder. Mated to a 10-speed automatic transmission, um, there's also an electronically controlled active valve exhaust system that amplifies or quietens the engine note depending on the mode you select. So you can you know, leave at 6am for the building site in quiet mode and not piss off your neighbours. And then after work, you can let off some steam in Baja mode and make a real racket if you want to. Um, there's also front and rear locking diffs now. There's an extra driving mode. The old Baja mode that basically it's it's sort of the, uh, the off-road drifting donut mode obviously remains. <laughs> it's now got a full-time 4x4 system with, a, with an on-road uh, capable system that allows you to drive on the road in 4x4 mode. Um, underneath, sort of similar in terms of its in terms of its core mechanicals, but lots of reinforcements have gone on. It's been utterly torture tested. It retains the two and a half inch Fox docks, but they've got live valve position sensitive dampers now, which should hopefully keep that rear end a bit tamer under extreme acceleration. And because this car is going to be so much quicker than the old one, you're really going to need that. Um, and this car, once again, just like the previous Raptor, is designed to handle jumps. Um, heaps of bash plates underneath. Then you look inside 
and you sort of find something quite similar to the new Ranger, funnily enough. So a circa 12-inch portrait-oriented centre touchscreen dominates with its own off-road specific modes. You've got huge bucket seats front and rear, really great bolstering and orangey-red highlights, so definitely a step up there. I always thought the D-Max had the best seats in the ute market, but I reckon the Raptor might have it covered here. Full digital instrument display, so tons more tech B&O sound system thrown in there as well. So it sort of seems to me like Ford has taken the recipe and the formula that worked so well with the old one and they've just turned up the wick. They've turned it up to 11, given it more power, um, given it tougher looks, given it more tech, tortured the crap out of it in development, over 150,000 Ks in six months of development. Um, And they've made what looks like the pretty much the perfect little monster truck for Australian buyers. The big question is going to be price, right? Everything else is 20 grand more expensive than it used to be these days with COVID and supply chain and all the other different impediments. So if the old one was around the 80 mark, I'm wondering if this one's going to be a six-figure Raptor. I certainly hope not, but uh, until they actually tell us the pricing, I'm going to expect the worst. Yeah. Um, how much has Australia been involved in, in making this vehicle? Oh, immensely. So this is a very Australian car. It's obviously not made in Australia. It's made in Thailand like other ranges. But the whole Ranger program was done in Australia by uh, the Victorian-based team here of engineers and designers, more than a 1,000 um, at both the Geelong Proving Ground or the Yuyangs Proving Ground and the Melbourne R&D Centre. Um, and the Raptor was no different. So Justin Capicciano and, and a few other quite you know well-known local engineers were, were heavily involved in this program. Most of the testing was done here. It's safe to say that it's probably not quite as Aussie as a as an 80s Commodore, but, you know, as, as far as it goes today, this is about as Aussie as, as a car gets um, and it's been designed from the ground up to really dominate the Australian, the Australian landscape. This feels like a real, not very PC of me to say, but a bit of a middle finger to, to a lot of Ford's competitors because we've seen Ford really started a trend with the Raptor and we've seen the Navara Warrior, we've seen the uh, Walkinshaw-tuned Amarox, um, I, I, off the top of my head, there's there's others I'm missing. Obviously, the locally done Hilux Rugged X, all these other modified utes that have sort of tried to capitalise and muscle in on the Raptors' turf. And it feels like Ford has sort of turned around and almost disdainfully just laughed at them and then launched this only four years after the first Raptor came out with all this power and all this new stuff in it. I mean, it is it is far and away the most impressive looking modified mute that I've seen out there. Uh, and if it can deliver what it promises to, it's you know they're going to have no end of demand from 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 rabid customers. You'll see a lot of them tailgating you on you know your bumper at 120 in the right hand <laughs> lane in no time. <laughs> uh, there's a stacks of Raptor content at Car Expert, including a 16 minute video of Paul Marrick taking you through it as and- well. On that note, I got to mention with the video, um, that was actually in the top 10 trending videos on YouTube for a good chunk of yesterday. No it's gone way. absolutely nuts. It's, I think it's about 200,000 views at the moment, uh, less than a day after it's gone live. One of the biggest videos that Igor, Sean and Paul have ever done, and um, it's fantastic. So please do go watch it, check it out. He does a full walk around. It's a lot better than me explaining it. You can actually see it in video form. Um, yeah. so, so go check that out if you're interested. Awesome stuff. All right, uh, Moko, let's talk small, fun cars and maybe quick cars too. Uh, your latest comparison is between the Hyundai i20N and Subaru BRZ. Interesting choice of cars. Why did you choose these? Well, it was kind of half a crime of opportunity and half 
just trying to come up with a, a bit of a different angle. So I think you wouldn't say that this is a conventional like-for-like like comparison test. Mm. But what it is is two affordable pocket rockets that go about delivering as much fun as possible for as much for as little coin as possible in fundamentally different ways. So why not celebrate the fact that both these cars exist? celebrate that both these cars are amazing. Maybe we'll come up with a verdict, maybe we won't, but at least we can kind of look into two of the most dynamic, small, affordable performance cars out there. So the i20N, turbocharged, rally-inspired, front-wheel drive, five-door hatchback. The BRZ, rear-wheel drive, naturally aspirated, two-door coupe. It couldn't be more different, and yet they're both, you know, $40,000, or in the case of the i20N, $34,000, and the BRZ, $40,000, but affordable performance, small, cheap, hot vehicles. So it's really just a celebration of the fact that in this modern sort of hegemonic, you know, anodyne era of electric cars and autonomy and all these things that we hear about, that you can still get two cheap performance cars of this note. It's really a celebration of that more than anything else. Love it. Uh, which one do you think uh, you, you get more bang for your buck with? Well, the i20N, i got to say, is extraordinarily good value for money. 33490 before on-road costs, so sort of 36 grand drive away. Um, 6.2 seconds to 100, which is, you know, properly <laughs> quick. LSD at the front, all the different driving modes like all the other N products, so you can, you know, different exhaust noises, different steering weights, fixed dampers so not quite the full spectrum that you get in the i30n um you know great little short shifting six speed manual huge touchscreen, digital instruments i mean we live in an era now where a, a yaris hybrid costs 30 grand the fact that this thing comes incredibly well specified with all that performance too for 33 490 is actually unbelievable it's not so much that the brz's a ripoff but you do remember or i remember anyway the first 86 brz's were in the low 30s range and this one's 40 so it's definitely crept up over the past few years so if we're talking purely bang for buck the hyundai definitely gets the nod uh, i really enjoyed the i20 and myself i haven't spent a lot of time in the new brz but i imagine mocha you had a lot of fun testing and writing this i'll be really interested to see your um your verdict because i know um chris atkinson also recently took the i20 and around queensland raceway and was i believe is quite was quite impressed with it as well so it'll be um a very interesting read for sure They've got fundamentally different characteristics, as you'd expect. So the i20N's got a hell of a lot more low-down torque, so it's a much more relaxed experience low-down. It's nowhere near as rev-happy as the naturally aspirated 2.4 in the BRZ, which has got a lot more mid-range than it used to have. Uh, obviously, being front-wheel drive, it's got very different characteristics. You're not going to get that crazy tail-happy power oversteer stuff that you get in the BRZ. You've got to drive it in a much more smooth fashion. Um, if you lift off mid-corner, you'll get a little bit of playfulness going on the brz is sort of a, a set and forget one size fits all the i20n's got a bunch of different driving modes that you can mess with all these awesome different menus like lap timers and things like that it's a much more video gamey experience inside the brz is all about purity right so it's got a, a an aspirated engine that loves to rev out to seven and a half thousand rpm it's got a really basic interior you sit way lower way closer to the ground than you do in the hyundai 
Um, the rear wheel drive gives it a very sort of specific feeling that you don't get anymore. It's so rare to drive a, an aspirated rear drive small coupe these days. It's a bit of a throwback in that sense. So yeah, it was incredibly fun to do. And, and I can't say enough that this piece isn't really about saying you should buy one over the other because it's going to appeal to sort of different people who are after a cheap performance car. It's more just a celebration of the fact that there are two fundamentally different ways to come up with the same result. And uh, let's just describe them. Atco's videos will be incorporated into the piece as well so that, you know, a real racing driver can give you his two cents because who cares what I think when Atco's sitting there, right? <laughs> um, and um, I just, I'm just so glad that both Hyundai and, and Subaru continue to make cars like this. Which one would you take home? I would take the i20N actually. I um I'm just I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. I love the N products. I think um, Albert Beerman's gone now, but I think what that what Hyundai N was able to achieve with its Nurburgring tuning program was great, and um, I think it's the best value hot hatch. Well, since the Yaris GR, funnily enough, which actually wasn't all that long ago. But um, <laughs> as good as the BRZ is, I think I'm more of an i20N man. I like that turbo grunt as well. It's probably easier for you to fit into as well, Moko, given your height. Uh, well, that's, the actually, that's actually a really good point, and I'm glad you brought it up, of course. The BRZ being a two-door coupe, technically you've got two seats behind you, unlike an MX-5, but they're useless, and the boot's got a full-size spare in it, so it's worse than useless. Whereas the i20N, I can actually fit in the back of it and it's got a boot. So in, in terms of practicality, it's it's a no-brainer as well. Yeah. Keep your eyes on Car Expert for that comparison to Lob very soon. Thank you, Mike Costello. Pleasure as always, guys. All right. That's the end of this week's podcast. Uh, J-Wo, where are we off to in the next couple of weeks? Uh, well, next week there doesn't seem to be anything in the calendar, and since I manage the calendar, I would hope that I haven't forgotten anything. <laughs> but um, so the the only other event that we've got in the next fortnight is um, I'm actually going to Tasmania to drive the new Audi S3, which I'm very very excited about. Um, I'll be doing that over a couple of days um, in the week commencing March seventh. So that's Best what we've got. Best stage in Australia to go driving. I've heard. I've heard. I've actually oh. never driven down there myself. So <gasps> I'm neither. sure I'm sure Audi's got plenty of very picturesque roads and stops for me. And if I can do any of the target Tasmania roads in an all-wheel drive hot hatch, <laughs> I reckon I'll be pretty sweet. <laughs> I think the best part about driving in Tassie is, uh, or the most attractive thing about it, is there's not a lot of cars on the road. Yeah, yeah. So it'll um, be good to be sort of like uninterrupted and not exactly. get stuck behind a caravan yes. for 30 minutes and that don't go into the slow vehicle zones and let you pass, right? That's a very common Victorian <laughs> pet peeve. Is it a Queensland thing, Will? Um, I don't know, but I was just thinking Tasmania doesn't have many speed cameras either. I say <gasps> on a just completely unrelated note. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> yes. Um, and what cars can we look forward to next week, Will? So in Melbourne, there's a Hyundai Palisade Elite uh, diesel all-wheel drive. Uh, there's a Mazda BT50XS with the new 1.9 litre engine. I was just in its Isuzu D-Max twin up here. Um, Ford Puma front-wheel drive. Um, we're getting a couple of the new Lexus NX through the Melbourne garage. So the 250, which is the base and the 450H Plus F Sport, which is the top spec plug-in hybrid model. Uh, so a bit of contrast there. In Sydney, we have got a Hyundai Tucson Highlander with the N-Line package and the 1.6-litre turbo with all-wheel drive. I am finally um, getting to drive a Genesis GV70, 2.5-litre uh, turbo. Uh, so Albor's has had plenty of uh, time behind the wheel in one. I've sat in it. Now I finally get to drive one, so that's cool. Nice. Um, 
The um, we're also getting, I'm pretty sure, a Toyota Yaris in Cherry Blossom. And if you have not seen a Toyota Yaris in Cherry Blossom, no. please Google it. It is the weirdest color. It's oh, you know how you see like your little old micros and that like fun pinks. This is like yes. a white. Like if you washed a white shirt with something purple that the dye hadn't set in, and it's huh? just this kind of weirdly tinted white. It's it is. Oh, horrid. So bizarre. Uh, Oh, let's Google it now. Yeah, exactly. I'm in a Yaris Cross the week after, and I hope it's not that foul brown color uh, that the last Yaris Cross (laughs) was in. I mean, kudos to Toyota for for experimenting with different colors, but the cherry blossom doesn't work, guys. Um, And finally, um, I've actually already picked it up. I'm in a Volvo XC40 Recharge um, Pure Electric, which is actually pretty interesting because um, I've just finished writing my comparison test I spoke about a while ago between the Hyundai Ioniq 5 and the Lexus UX 300e. So, here I am in a, you know, relatively similarly priced um, electric vehicle. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with this XC40. Um, it, it's, um, it's taken a little bit of adjustment over the past couple of days to get used to not pressing a start-stop button. Like, quite literally, open the door, get in the car, sit in the seat, and it's just on. And then you what? just put it into reverse or drive. Yeah, I know. It tr- it's everyone has showed it's, it to it. It trips safe. Flat. Yeah, it seems a, it seems a bit odd. Um, and then if you, how do you think you um turn the car off, Mandy? You get out. Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> really? You just put that's it in so park. Bizarre. Put it in park, and then just open the door and um and step out. So. That's um, it's very trippy, but it's also my first experience with a car that has Android Automotive. Um, so I've got Google Maps on the instrument cluster, and I mean, I'm uh, the one person in the office uh, who has um, an Android device. James is making a face. Um, I've, I've got a Google Pixel Six Pro, um, so I feel kind of right at home there. I've downloaded Spotify onto the main screen, and then um, was driving my sister around. She's like, "Oh, you've got to change the song," and you know, just goes into the Spotify app and presses search and just able to get results it just works like using spotify on a phone obviously there's a lot of functions that are that are locked out while while you're driving um like uh, the app store um uh, sorry the google play store but no it's, it's just very interesting uh to experience that kind of android interface in a car um mm-hmm. so i'm looking forward to driving that around a little bit uh more i've also got a toyota kluger grande hybrid all-wheel drive at the moment as well so it's always nice to have a little bit of choice it's probably also worth noting, guys, that um, Scott Colley did a comparison test between the Ionic 5 and the Volvo XC40 Recharge. So, Will, it would be interesting to see if you come to the same conclusion as Scott did a couple of months ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, James Wong and William Stopford, thank you. Do you oh, want to do that? oh, now you say his there name first. Uh, Bye, I guess, guys. Peace I out. Guess it's fair. <laughs> I guess it's fair. Give him that. 